Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners who will introduce themselves. And today's icebreaker question is inspired by the new SANS Security Awareness Report. The primary point that they were making was how vital communication is. And they say that we need to learn how to effectively communicate and to demonstrate our value to leadership because we need to stop blaming employees as the security problem and start blaming ourselves. And so we hear the word communicate a lot, but to me, it sounds like an empty calorie word. And I wanted to know uh, what communication means to you and if you're able to provide an example that demonstrates good communication skills. This is Mike Thompson and I think really the the goal of communication is to facilitate understanding and a good example of this this is really a bad communication on my part but a few years ago I was working with a, a company who had been affected by ransomware a few times and you know weeks later there you know the the guy our main contact there had seen a story about ransomware on you know some sort of police procedural show like CSI or law and order or something to that effect and he was all scared he's like is this real could this really happen I was like, it's happened to you multiple times. But, you know, you know, me talking about it in the technical terms didn't resonate with him. It was seeing this TV show that really <laughs> proved the threat. So this is Forrest. And yeah, to kind of expand on that, I think it's important communication. Like, I think the purpose is to get an understanding from one person's brain, like into another person's brain. And I guess the, the skill of communication is like the clarity through which that process kind of happens. And, you know, like actually being able to tell, you know, a regular user about, the purpose behind a policy, I think, is the important part communicatively that we're kind of thinking about here. Hi, this is Killian. Just thinking about that article a little bit, I don't like the assumption in some ways there that somebody's to blame for this problem. I don't think it's the IT practitioners, the security practitioners' fault in a way, and I don't feel like it's right to blame the users either. We're all in this together, I think, is is the point that I'm trying to make. So assigning blame like that, I I feel like just kind of hurts everybody. I think the goal of the article was is it's fantastic um, and has a lot of uh, relevant points. But I don't think assigning blame to anybody helps. But the the takeaway is that we do need to communicate more clearly. And I think we talked about this in a couple episodes ago. I like to to communicate technical or complex theories in in the form of analogy. It just helps kind of people, you know, leverage their social knowledge, things that they might come in contact with that are not necessarily technical, and draw those parallels. I think it makes it uh, much easier for them to digest. That's a really good point, Killian. Thanks, guys. Uh, as always, our housekeeping announcement is if you're a regular listener and, and enjoy our show, please go to iTunes to rate and review the Inside Out Security Show, and we'll put you in, in the running for a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, visit veronis.com slash review. And so let's go to today's show. I think a good segue from our icebreaker question on communication is to the poll on security professionals. And it said that 83% of security pros help colleagues with a non-security related IT problem on a weekly basis. And they say that it, it's making the firm lose money and security pros are being mistaken for sysadmins. And I'm definitely interested in hearing your thoughts because 
in our world, sysadmins are so important when it comes to permissions management, and it feels like the article is trying to create some kind of hierarchy, and it also brought up the question of salary and how security pros require more training, and so they're more valued in the organization. What are your responses? I'm trying to create drama here, guys. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the, the kind of story here is that everyone's got their own role and it might be a waste of someone's time and their skill set to do something that they're not really focused on. And I think that kind of ties back into the first talking point, the introduction question about this security awareness and communication. And that is, you know, technical people also being in charge of communicating these policies rather than someone who's skilled in communication or marketing or, you know, messaging. So you got to find the, the right tool for the job. And sometimes, the, you know, a security person might have, you know, they might have the skills to fix these minor IT problems, but is it a waste of those resources? Now, if they're not busy, then maybe not, but I'm, I'm not trying to call out anybody. But I, I do think that there's probably a lot of overlap in most organizations, certainly a lot of the companies I talk to. You know, someone who is a sysadmin is generally wearing a security hat as well. Only certain organizations have really separated out those roles entirely. Yeah, it's kind of a minor continuation on that. It might be sort of a, a growing pains of information security as an independent discipline to have this overlap. I mean, you know, I think the, what was it, the statistic was 83% of security professionals said they spent at least one hour per week. And then a, a smaller subset, I think 8% was over five hours per week on more traditional IT or like sysadmin tasks. And I wonder what that would be compared to maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. You know, maybe that number is coming down, the amount of sysadmin type work that I that security personnel are kind of doing. If that's coming down, if that's an indicator that it is becoming a more and more distinct discipline. Could be a good sign, honestly. So this reminds me of what we talked about on the show from last week. We kind of had touched on the topic that really everybody in the organization, so the sysadmin people, um, are actually transitioning more into a security role. So as these kind of things blend together, I wouldn't imagine uncommon for there to be a little bit of blurring of the lines um, between functionality because we all kind of have to be security practitioners. And, and as Cindy mentioned, in our world to a certain extent, there are a lot of people involved in good security practice and securing data and things like that. So I don't think it's there's quite as clear delineation. Then again, Sometimes it's nice to have somebody recognize that there is a difference. I'm sure our listeners and you guys on the podcast with us here have had to fix even relatives' computers about a million times. So it, it can get a little bit of frustrating, I think, uh, to have to kind of do the basic hygiene work sometimes, too, when that's not really your, your skill set or your focus. Yeah, I agree. My opinion is that uh, security pros and sysadmin roles, there are overlapping duties and we're really all in this together. For instance, there was a story about prisoners in Ohio and they were able to build two computers and then they connected it to the State Departments of Rehabilitation and Corrections Network. And then the authorities found that they st stored those self-made computers in the ceiling. And the way that the inmates got these parts was that there was a recycling program for gadgets and they were able to go online to figure out how to build explosives, message their moms, apply for credit cards, research tax refund fraud. And so I'm sure whoever was in charge of the inmates, they must have seen them lugging parts around and they might have not thought of the security aspect when it came to computers and 
or maybe they have, but the inmates were abusing some of the freedom in the policy. When I read this, I thought it was kind of a really good distillation of what we're seeing kind of in the world at large. So if you think about a, a prison, they're lo- you know they're not locked down, uh, but they're much more tightly regulated than you know your typical work or office environment, despite how that might feel to some people sometimes. <laughs> but they were still able to to do this, put this all together and get online. And it wasn't until quite a bit after the fact, I think several months, that the uh, IT staff, the security staff, discovered it completely by accident uh, because the inmates had gone over their bandwidth allocation and they got a notice from, again, a completely unrelated system. So if you think about it in that context, it just kind of highlights the fact that even in the business world and the security world, we often don't have all the insight we need. We find out kind of after the fact, after something's gone kind of wrong, that this has happened. And I I think a lot of people can probably sympathize with that. And we've seen it in the news so often too, where organizations don't find out they've been compromised until, you know, they get a knock on the door from the FBI or they find it, uh, you know, their data on pastebin or somewhere. It's a, it's a problem that, that, plagues us all. And again, even in the case of the inmates who are supposed to be kind of very tightly monitored, things like this happen. So just imagine what goes on on a, on a corporate network without this type of oversight. The thing that jumped out to me is, you know, something we, we talk about a lot, which is that, you know, humans are, we are often the point of failure when it comes to security. You know, we, we, we it doesn't matter how much security protocols you have in place if you're going to let anyone in the door if they flash a, a badge or, or even just knock, right? So, you know, the, the, there are people who were supposed to be monitoring this. There are people who, who should have stopped and done checkpoints and security searches to stop them from relocating this computer equipment or being having them being monitored while in this, uh, you know, closet alone while they're putting all this equipment and hiding it in the ceiling. So it was a human point of failure, and it's, it's hard to account for that. You can have all the policies you want in the world to, to lock down security, but if, uh, you know, the, the users themselves, the people are not going to follow those policies, then what good are they? And, you know, let's not put all this on, I guess, the corrections officers. I mean, I, w- I would argue that I think I, there were pictures of the the switches and, and equipment that were kind of in the environment. I mean, uh, looking at the switches there, I mean, it, it, I would be surprised if the people who are administering that, you know, really had a good handle on every single thing that was connected in there into the switch network. So there's sort of a, a back-end monitoring that could have alleviated this or detected this earlier as well. So let's play with some ideas here and let's pretend these guys in jail, uh, they somehow kept their computers and they hacked into some poor victims and stole sensitive information like your social security number, your credit card number, and maybe even your health data. And there's a bill floating around that might make it legal for victims of cyber hacks to, after they notify the FBI, to be able to hack back their attackers. And so victims are able to destroy their own data that was stolen, but not the attacker's data. And there are a lot of potential things that can happen, and it would be so hard to regulate and enforce because, like, for instance, you, you can't cause a threat to the public health or, or safety. H- how would you know if someone hacks back that they won't do any harm on their attacker or w- they could have accidentally done something or the alternative, do something totally intentional to cause harm? This sounds 100% like how Shadowrun or, like, some cyberpunk future starts, like. <laughs> 
where you have like warring factions of of like uh, of like hackers that are like fight on behalf of corporations. I mean, but it, in seriousness, though, I mean, you know, think about the potential for like you know accidental damage during uh, what was the term an active attack or responsive attack. Um, I mean. No, think about it now, you know, the, the complications of laws, like when there's, what do you call them, like bounty hunters and, and bail bonds persons who are out there, like, you know, and people get hurt during the course of that. You know, is it written off because it's sort of they check the legal boxes? Cindy brings up a good point is how, how do you police this? Like, you know, you notify the FBI that, OK, we're going to attempt to hack back, you know, we're going to take back control of our, our data or whatever. But unless there's like an FBI chaperone sitting, you know, behind you, watching over your shoulder as you as, as you're going through this process, I, I don't see how they could possibly know um, and, and and control what's happening. I'm not saying that people shouldn't have the right to uh, to take action when they're breached, but these guidelines that they're proposing, I don't see how they could possibly be enforced realistically. I'm pretty conflicted on this one. I think kind of at a base human level, I think it would be really cathartic to to you know have that kind of revenge on someone who's done you wrong. Um, you know, I'm sure anybody who got hit with WannaCry, you know, wouldn't mind uh, giving those guys a little bit of what for, to use the old timey term. But the only thing I think about then is, you know, like an old Clint Eastwood movie where, you know, you have, again, the two warring factions and, uh, you know, the sheriff kind of just sits in the background and, and lets them duke it out and kind of and cause kind of all sorts of havoc to the town that they happen to be inhabiting, or in this case, the Internet. I think it would get out of control very quickly. Now, some retaliation, and I had seen a speaker at a conference had mentioned something like this, that that's the only sure deterrent is to have kind of a um, this kind of mentality. And I think there's some rationale to that, but, yeah, how would you go about policing this or, or again, preventing it from just completely spiraling out of control? I kind of like what like, a security researcher got in touch with a hacker. For instance, they had an encounter with ransomware and they called the ransomware hackers support helpline and to sort of mess with their head or to get more information. I feel like if you're stealthy in that way, it's more interesting rather than doing an eye for an eye. And so we were taught that that's probably not a good idea. It's much more educational because what it is is a learning opportunity. But, you know, these days, whether you're a white hat or a black hat, a lot of our evidence resides on our phones. And there are a few interesting scenarios where it could be, uh, if you say the right response, you're able to literally get it'll be your get out of jail card for instance if you say you forgot your password to your phone a suspect it happened where he won't face any charges but then there was another person who sweared under oath that they had given them the password but gave the wrong one ended up in jail and so subjective what are your thoughts i mean it's a tricky territory in terms of like i think that the really tricky thing is you know, the wrong password, giving your wrong password. I, I think, uh, you know, if you do that, it's honest mistake, or you really thought you were giving the right password. And it's, it's crazy to think you end up in contempt of court for that or, or land yourself in, in prison for longer. I, I don't really know where this falls in, in terms of, do you have the right to that privacy or not? I, I would certainly, you know, as a as an innocent person, I would, you know, not want anyone looking through my phone. I would, you know, I value the fact that iMessages, for example, is encrypted by default, that, that no one has access to that information without having my device. That's comforting to me. 
you know, they, they bring up the, the case of San Bernardino and, you know, them trying to force Apple to create basically a backdoor in iOS to, to allow de-encryption of that data without having to have the passcode for the device. So I think there's, you know, there's just one of many legal challenges around this. It's, it's tricky space. And it's and you know, in this article, they even mentioned, despite the fact that some of these things have been pretty high profile, we read about these cases where people are being forced to give up their pin codes or whatever. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, amount of cases that actually involve that, it's still pretty low. So this is new territory. I think there will probably be clarification in the next couple of years as to what rights we really have. We're probably just now seeing um, kind of the, the first bits of blowback from this. Oh, wait. I want to also ask if you guys change your phone's passcode every once in a while, because if you're under pressure and the police is asking you for your passcode, you can potentially give them like the last one you use, you know, and then you could end up in jail. I don't think I've ever changed mine, but I will now. (laughs) I mean, I would never do anything wrong and warrant police speaking to me at all. So let's just be real about that first off. I mean, I think that that brings up kind of the the core of this. A lot of it is at the judge's discretion if he believes you. There is a case and, you know, there could be some history to it. Again, like, for example, corporate devices. A lot of them have password policies where you have to change it every so often. You know, if you implement something similar like that at home or on your phone, um, it's potential, you know, there's a, a reasonable belief that you could have actually forgotten your password. Um, in practice, I can't imagine many people change their phone pin code ever, if they even have one. It just doesn't strike me as something that, that would typically happen in the consumer world. So there's that kind of reasonable expectation if you would expect them to know it or or remember it if they don't implement a strict password policy. So that, that kind of muddies the waters a little bit. So you're saying that we should just be good actors or actresses in front of the judge? I'm not even going to touch that whole portion of the you know legal system and the jury of your peers but i mean it it is important that perception um that you you present um is is i think more important i think we want to believe that the law is kind of very absolute but you know there are always people involved and it's you know the system could be a strength and a weakness you know i think we talked about this on a a previous episode but apparently there's some sort of legal precedent as well for whether it's passcode protected versus biometrically protected and that you have different defenses, I guess, or rights versus whether you uh, have a, just a simple passcode protecting your device or if you can use unlock it versus with your fingerprint. So I don't know. I think that there's a lot of variables here. You know, a four, a four digit pin code is, is, you know, you might have a harder time admitting or acting like you forgot your, your password. However, I, I probably speak for everyone here uh, who's worked in IT for a while where, you know, I've gotten locked out of my laptop before. I've had, you know, BitLocker uh, issues trying to get into my laptop in the morning, and then, you know, you get to put in that long recovery key. There, there are ways to get locked out of your device, so uh, there's definitely some wiggle room there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point, too, and I, I believe kind of the, the way it sort of stands right now, at least in a, in a number of the cases that we've seen, is that, um, you can be compelled. Um, you have to give up, for example, your fingerprint uh, if you're using biometric security, and that's completely fine. There's some legal precedents to support that, but the pin code is much more difficult because it's something that you know. Uh, and then again, you get into the Fifth Amendment, where you know you're basically testifying against yourself. But then, you know, then again, the court has been very split over it, and this might be ha- end up having to be a Supreme Court judgment because it is kind of a core constitutional issue. 
Have you guys ever thought of why it takes the law to catch up with technology? The only thing I could come up with is that if you want to write a good book, books that require 10 years of research is going to be, in my opinion, more thoughtfully written out than a one-year book quota. It takes a long time to figure out what a good law could be, and you have to iterate the terms. Whereas in technology, you come up with an idea, code a bit, and then iterate by having different versions. I think the perfect analogy for this is, you know, because I, I like that, is it's like trying to build a house next to a river in front of a boat going down the river. I butcher that analogy, but um, it's, a, it's a pretty common one. The boat is going to continue to go down that river, and you know, you're going to start to put up the foundation of your house or you know, the beams, and the boat's going to keep on going. So you're going to have to keep stopping and moving it down river. I mean, that's the perfect analogy. The technology changes so rapidly, even in, in InfoSec and everything else, that tries to keep up with it, but it's constantly evolving so quickly. People have breakthroughs, new innovations. People adopt new technologies constantly. It's, it's a driving force, and there's big business behind it to continue innovating. And the law is not really designed like that. Not that the law is, is stagnant or static, but it tends to take more time to kind of process and get approved. Just that's the way our system works. So it's, I don't know if they'll ever catch up. And I don't know if there's a way to ever do it without either coming up with really sloppy, hasty, uh, hastily written laws or stifling innovation. Yeah, and I really don't think it should catch up. I mean, like you said, technology is constantly changing, and it's also, you know, a massive field. So much stuff falls under technology, under that umbrella. You know, if we tried to, like, make laws and legislate around every technological innovation, I mean, that'd be insane. Our, our, our legal code would be so complicated. I mean, how, how many technologies come up and, and do nothing, or and then how many are surprised surprising on how much effect they've had. Like when I first heard about Bitcoin many years ago, I didn't think it would be quite as world changing as it's been. So I feel like with technology, you kind of have to wait to see how is it going to be adopted? What is the larger impact across the industry, across culture before you can even determine whether it needs um, to be legislated in some way? Yeah, I mean, there's no, you know, law doesn't get made preemptively. I mean, there's no motivation for it, you know, if the problems don't exist yet, if they haven't been, if they haven't surfaced yet. I would be more afraid if we were trying to write these laws kind of very quickly and reactively. That's how you end up with, you know, I'm sure as kids you've seen those books of like funny laws like, you know, you're not allowed to put a squirrel in a bathtub somewhere. You know, some of those other random weird ones that probably were written for some very specific instance. And yeah, it, it can result in just a ridiculous addition to the legal code, no kind of clear path anywhere. I mean, even if you look at the code anymore, there are so many laws in the books in so many places that... You know, technically, almost anything could probably be illegal at some point somewhere. As we're trying to figure out how to live symbiotically with the law and technology, it's confusing when we have to live with what's in the queue or what's new and coming. And there's a new cybersecurity law in China. There are many unknowns to their law, but I thought it was really interesting that they would require companies to store their data within China. Like if you're a Chinese business, what if you do business in the U.S. and you have companies physically set up in the U.S. or in Europe and 
would it make sense to have the data only stored in China? Because everybody stores their data all over the place now. Forrest, you mentioned earlier about, you know, there's a problem and then you create a law for it. What, what kind of problems do you think that they're facing? Well, we already see this in terms of like the American government. I know there was like, there's been issues in the past of, you know, some big technology firms, you know, running a lot of their data or storing a lot of their data in, I want to say Ireland, there's a lot of data centers that cover that a lot of American consumer data gets stored in. I, I could be wrong about that country, but like the purpose of that being that it is not under American privacy laws that, you know, maybe are a little bit looser and the government has more ability to, you know, subpoena data basically from, from a tech firm. So, I mean, there's already been attempts by companies to, you know, locate their, their physical data resources in places where they're kind of being selective about the legislation. And so, I mean, I, I imagine that China is doing, I mean, this portion of the law is pretty complex law, but I mean, part of it is just so that it's, you know, still under the jurisdiction and so that the Chinese government, if necessary, you know, could be pressuring a, a tech firm in China, you know, to like actually have that data there where legal jurisdiction is is present. That. It kind of reminds me, and you know, we've been talking about this so much, this is kind of like the inverse of GDPR or, or very similar kind of struggle that people are going to go through to figure this out. With, with the way that um, GDPR is kind of set up and written, a lot more companies, again, all over the world are fall into kind of the, you know, by default um, requirements of GDPR if they have to work with or store any data on European citizens. So really all over the world, I think people are starting to wake up and say, wait a minute, this, this is something that we have to comply with because we do uh, you know, have business operations or work with um, folks in the EU. So I, I feel like this is going to be a similar type of situation where, heck, I mean, the Chinese law might even put them in direct conflict with uh, GDPR if it is a Chinese business um, and it has European citizen data stored there for some reason. You know, could that be opening that data to, to China or the government to store it in some other way? There are a lot of really kind of interesting legal questions here that I don't think we know enough about the law to make decisions or even um, speculate at this point. And, you know, we just had this conversation and, you know, the law catching up to technology. And I, I think it, with all these increased regulations, it might really change the way we think about technology or how networks are designed. For our generation, I think we grew up with this idea of the the open web and internet and connecting all these uh, different people around the globe. But uh, as law starts to come into play, I think we're going to see things a lot more segmented, a lot more sandboxed, and and it's not going to be quite the the open web as we're used to it. What are you envisioning? Do you have any ideas? I want to play with that for a little bit. I don't know, but I mean, I, I, I'm wondering if it, you mentioned that people have store their data everywhere. You know, it's not like they have one data center. They have data centers all around the world. And it, it might be that, uh, you know, there's there's apps or, you know, well, first of all, that's, that's another good point. Apps are already kind of closing off the open web a little bit. People are no longer using the browser as their kind of main interaction with the internet, you know, now things are more self-contained in this ecosystem, in an application on their on their mobile device, whatever it may be. So we might start to see that segmented more. You know, this might really just be for U.S. consumers or China consumers or whatever. And then there's different infrastructure, backend infrastructure in place, so that we're we're no longer communicating people on around the world, but we're rather using a service that is um, for one country and one country only. Thanks to Mike Thompson, Forrest Temple, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. 
and we'll meet up again next week. Bye, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye.